Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fluency, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of yoga and psychology, a place to consider all aspects of our humanness and tools to bring home to our own inner lives. I'm Livia Cohen Shapiro. I'm a mama, a wife, a yoga teacher, a somatic therapist, and I'm the founder of Applied Psychology for Yogis and the School for Ecstatic Unfoldment. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Really happy to be with you. And I thought this week I would bring on my friend and colleague, Jenna. And Jenna uh, is doing this amazing thing in the Boulder community and beyond called All Terrain Yoga. And it's really about, um, well, she'll tell us more about it, but one of the things I'm so inspired about with her is um, the yoga in what we might consider an alternative space, so yoga outside of the studio. And um, she has a lot of really insightful um, things for us around um, how to create a teaching environment that really fits for us and that might not be in a studio and how to go about that and what teaching outside the studio means and looks like. And I'm just really excited you're here. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here too. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about Jenna and altering yoga and just give us sort of a little bit of a vision of, you know, who you are, what you're up to. And yeah. Um, so I, I have lived in Colorado for almost 10 years now, which is crazy. Um, and I started practicing yoga um, kind of just before I got out here and then never really expected for it to be something I did professionally. Um, but I started practicing after having a degree in international relations and wanting to be in politics and be a diplomat and all these different things. And then um, this practice really resonated with me a lot in ways that I wasn't expecting or looking for. Um, so I started teaching kind of from that space of like, actually these are all the issues that I wanted to talk about in terms of like international policy. I realized that a lot of those things started for me within myself and with my identity of like who I was and what I expected for myself and my life and my family um, and kind of what that meant for what type of a person I was in the world. So from the very beginning, I was really connected with my practice in terms of what type of person it allowed and enabled and inspired me to be and I also think I came into it really wanting to stay accessible and stay related to and connected with my family and the people from this very mainstream world that I came from um, you know hard-working smart people who weren't necessarily finding their way to ashrams and retreat centers um, who weren't vegan and um even like working for nonprofits and things like that uh really ways to just to stay connected to where i came from mm -hmm. um and to keep what i was teaching available to the people that i already cared about in my life mm. so i think that was all a lot of underlying inspiration for me um, that said i i did my first training and hoped to teach at the studio where i trained mm -hmm. and that didn't happen which i think is a pretty common experience mm -hmm. for new teacher trainees. Do you want to say anything more about that, like um, what that was, just kind of what that process was like? Um, it was really hard at the time. I think um, 
I felt like my performance in my teacher training was pretty strong. And so I moved through that pretty confident that I was going to be able to do what I wanted to afterwards. I'd also had pretty positive like education experiences and like I was used to kind of working hard and achieving in a pretty linear way and following the path that was laid out for me because it worked for me most right. of my life. So I was ready to do that again. You know, I did well in high school. I went to a good college. I figured I did well in teacher training. I would be a teacher. Right. And I had a really particular way of what that looked like. Um, or a particular idea of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So, um, when my teachers who had kind of become my friends and became my prospective employers mm -hmm. and then didn't hire me, it was like really devastating on a lot of different levels, mm -hmm. like personal, professional. Um, and again, I don't know that I, at that point really still saw myself as a career yoga teacher. I was waiting tables and bartending and, um, and getting to know Colorado and I was very much in a still exploratory phase of my life. But it was it was really challenging to to start to look at this practice that I felt had given me so much and that I was so ready to share with people. And then the way that I thought I needed to do that became quickly unavailable to me. Um, so, I mean, I don't think I sat in that for too long. I tried kind of alternative ways. I tried to teach other programs at the studio and get in from other ways rather than just like the level one vinyasa uh -huh. teaching classes. I uh -huh. did boot camps and cleanses and I just tried to stay active in the community. Um, but then I ended up getting hired up at a studio in Breckenridge. And I had lived in Breckenridge for a little while before I lived in Boulder. And... I was still trying to get up there to visit friends as often as possible. And I was like, this is perfect. There's a new studio opening. If I have a class up there, it'll be an excuse for me to go and get in a couple ski days and all that. Um, but I got up there and realized how different that studio was uh -huh. from the studio here. Sure. And I was like, oh, there's not just one way, even within a studio. Right. I saw the different types of students that were there, um, the different types of things that they were looking to get out of their practice, their different levels of experience, and kind of just different lifestyle between even just Summit County, Colorado, and Boulder. Yeah. Um, and so that was really valuable for me. And so I did definitely dabble in some other studios here. A local massage studio added a yoga program, and I was pretty active in that. That got me really comfortable teaching small classes. Talk to us a little bit about that, too. Yeah. Um, Jenna and I have talked – Jenna and I have, have spoken a lot about, like, the teaching big numbers versus teaching small numbers, the mindset around that, what that looks like, um, facing the sort of the internal stuff that comes up. So yeah, you have a, a good story about that. Yeah. So I think up in Breckenridge, I had that experience too, um, where, you know, being seasonal and being just a different type of community, sometimes there were 20 people in class and sometimes there were three. Right. Um, the studio that I practiced at in Boulder at first, Definitely, I got the feeling like if a teacher was good, there were 20 plus people, plus people in their class. Right. Um, and I don't know, because I never ended up being employed by them, I don't know firsthand how ingrained that was in the, like formal culture and if that was really required and that kind of thing. But there was definitely, as, a, as another student, if I went to a class and there were only two other people in it, I would have thought the teacher wasn't as good. Right. And now that you're on the other side and have done a lot of work, teaching small, really small classes, how's that shifted and what's your thought process there now? I think um, starting in Breck, but then also back down here at the Body Repistro was the, um, right. the studio down here. When we opened up at a new location, 
you know, it was kind of off the beaten path and it was a new thing for them. So right. I had a lot of classes with just one and two people. And there were definitely, there were definitely times where I was, where I would get down on myself and think I wasn't doing enough and I would, people didn't like it. And so they weren't coming back. But after just talking to enough people over several years, you know, you learn that like, the things I knew as a student, like what kept me from going to a class one day, you right. know? Um, something comes up, you get a phone call, your kid is sick or whatever. There are so many variables. Um, so staying top of mind, you know, there are things that we can do in a marketing sense to make that happen. But, um, and then of course we can provide a quality class, but I just quickly learned from anecdotal conversations that like yeah. people were clearly not, not coming because of me. Right. And then, even more powerfully, the people who were coming started to have really powerful experiences. Right. So when you're teaching, like, let's say, six or less people, mm -hmm. right, there's something that happens oh, yeah. in, I mean, even just in the visual field. Like, when you are teaching, like, in the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, like, you have to, the visual field is different. Like, mm -hmm. you have to do peripheral um, work a lot. You have to sort of... Um, like look at sections in the class. There's a whole strategy to work with large numbers mm -hmm. um, to keep people safe and, you know, um, provide alignment that might be deepening and transformative. And it's a way different thing when you're teaching smaller numbers because they're right there. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I've learned a lot about how I then teach larger classes now too. Right. I just came back from teaching on a cruise for five days with up to, you know, 60 people in classes that I didn't know. I mean, some of them I taught on the same boat last year, but um, but I there are poses that I now won't teach at all in that environment because I've seen five people do them and I've seen what those five people, what what I'm comfortable with. I'm, I've seen what I feel like I want to provide for those five people in terms of keeping them safe. Mm -hmm. And I know that I can't provide that for 60. Right. So I won't teach, right. you know, something. And it might depend on the group too. It's not mm -hmm. that I would say like, I'll never teach side plank to more sure. than 10 people, but it's like a certain more than 10 people that might not be appropriate. Sure. Um, and again, I don't think it's like, I would tell someone else not to do that. But for me, what I, I, I got really well acquainted with what I felt like I wanted to provide right. in order to keep people safe, encourage people just enough, um, help people feel supported and successful. Right. Um, so it sounds like there's a lot of self-discovery around your own boundaries as a teacher. Definitely. And like just really what you can and can't do, what you're willing to do or not do. And just that integrity alone, I think, is so valuable and, um, well, actually, it's priceless. Totally. I mean, the integrity of the teacher and knowing what's possible or what's not possible in any given moment, which, of course, dynamically changes. But um then the students are really lean, leaning on somebody who's like anchored and stable and all the things that I experience you as a teacher. Yeah. So. Um, and I never would have learned any of those things if I had just gone right into teaching 20 and 30 people. Right. Um, in that structure where like the classes are free until you have enough people who want to pay to come to your classes. Um, and I mean, I'm sure people who are teaching in traditional studios have opportunities to teach smaller classes too, but by building, you know, there are two students come to mind, Eric and Jill, who came to the Body Work Bistro all the time, and Megan, a few other ones who worked close by, and they came all the time. They quickly figured out that they were getting private yoga for right. $15. Right. 
um, which was awesome for all of us because right. I still, you know, they show up for my classes now still four or five years later mm-hmm. and I'm so psyched to see them right. and, and I can count on them understanding some fundamental things that make me able to take them to a totally different place that I can't take other people. Yeah. So watching that relationship develop in those really specific situations um, has just totally informed the way that, that I go into, you know, a group of people, again, to use the cruise as an example, where there were a number of people on the boat who I taught four times in four days, and there were some that I taught once or twice. Um, Some of them maybe I'll see next year, some of them maybe I saw last year, but I have a much more realistic understanding of what that relationship is and can be. And I'm not going to like shy away from trying to provide as powerful an experience as I can, but it's going to be with really different goals, probably most of them less physical than somebody who I'm going to have a longer term relationship with. Right. So then in a shorter and more, I don't want to say superficial because I think it can be just as deep, but in a more fleeting relationship that's not as sort of longitudinal, I can create more of a connective experience and more of a focus on maybe other parts of the being that aren't so physical because you can't take someone from like not being able to do compass pose to being able to do compass pose in four classes um, like I might have been able to do with one of those people who was showing up one-on-one for a year. Sure. And in those one-on-one interactions or the really small classes, I think we also have um, an opportunity to know more about a student. Like they're often more likely to talk to us before or after class. Mm -hmm. There's just a more kind of intimate relationship aside from the asthma that can, that can get there. Um, And not that that doesn't happen in the larger classes, but it's more likely to occur in the smaller ones. And I think that that's a lot of what inspired me actually to create larger classes outside of studios Uh because I find studios to be the least likely place for that deeper connection to happen before or after. And I'm sure you're experiencing Okay, so this feels like you all watching, this is like, like I think what you just said is super important. Mm -hmm. And this idea that what it is to create community. I mean, every studio I talk, I don't think there's a studio out there that one of their goals or aims is not to create community. They all want to create community. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we, what the, community is in function and practice might ultimately be different than the intention. And I think what I hear you saying is actually what you found is that when you've gone outside of the walls of what we're seeing as a studio, you're, you've had the opportunity to create more community than when it's under this such and such yoga studio. And that to me feels really important for the larger picture of yoga in terms of what each of us as a teacher is doing what we're bringing. Um, it ties into this idea of like having a following or having studentship. Um, it so beautifully ties into your story also about being a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't know that about you when you said, I'm like, Oh my God, it all makes so much sense now. <laughs> yeah. Like I get this whole gestalt, you know, like you really followed your soul's path a little bit in this, um, really organic way, which is so much of what we talk about um, in the work with Applied Psychology for Yogis is like, how do we um, work at the level of the soul, picking up all these little breadcrumb pieces and making something that's really of value and of worth. And I, I think I hear you saying that you've done that. I've, yeah, I've been trying sometimes not knowing and sometimes knowing. I went to a Jesuit university where uh, there was a lot of 
discourse around vocational discernment. And mm. so that's what I hear a little bit too. And what, and what you're saying, and that was my first dabbling in spirituality and reflection and meditation and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I was raised religious, so there was some spirituality there, but in terms of actually relating to my soul in a personal mm. way, about like how I relate to me mm. and how I relate to a higher power rather than like what the book says I'm supposed to do next. Mm. Um, that all started for me in college while I was, you know, studying seemingly very unrelated things, but, but it really all came together uh, in an interesting, or is coming together, I would say, yeah. um, in an interesting way. Yeah. So talk to us more about the, the creating community outside the studios and what that's looked like for you. Yeah, you know, when I've never totally thought about it like this, but when you were just saying it, it made me think of, um, I've also worked in restaurants and with food and wine a lot, and you know, wine that's grown in super fertile, lush soil tends to have less character than wine that's made from grapes that have to like cling to the side of a rocky hill. Oh, you wow. know? And I think sometimes community can be like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yoga studios are beautiful and they're awesome and I totally am not against sure, practicing in yoga course. studios. But if you're really looking to build deep personal connection with the people that you're practicing with, my experience and observation, it seems like that can be more effectively done when people have taken a little bit more of a step to do something off the beaten path, you know, um, because so more like co-creation instead of this, like, here's the studio. Now you may come, we will serve you. Right. You are our client and we will just do this customer. You're our customer. And mm -hmm. here's this like already given thing as opposed to this thing this other option of it really being co-created. Yeah, we're building it together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, you know, there's the reality of overhead also. So a studio has overhead. Totally. And the focus of their community, no matter how lovely the people are who are running it, the focus of the community is to get people through the door to pay the overhead of the business. Mm -hmm. Which, don't get me wrong, I mean, my business has overhead too. It's different. Sure. Um, it tends to be lower. Um, and right now I have fewer classes on a schedule than most studios do, which I think allows the community to form around a slightly more authentic and like actual community intention rather than like as a buzzword that looks good for search engine optimization or, um, or whatever else. Right. Well, there's so many words like, I mean, everybody loves to community, authenticity, right. embodiment, vulnerability, like, vulnerability. Right. Yeah. And they just, they're becoming so meaningless. We have to operationally define them, you know, what we mean in the context that we mean them, what it looks like to the specific people involved. And I guess that's how I feel about yoga too. When we take yoga out of the studio, every class, I feel like we start over with defining it because uh -huh. the space was being used to brew beer, you know, an hour before. So we get to like reclaim it again. And so the process of, but I think we're all, we're all doing it every yoga pose and every yoga class every day with every breath, you know, starting over again. Um, but coming into a space that wasn't being used for what it's being used for only moments before, I think gives the opportunity to be like, yep, here we are again. There's a bunch of like bubbling tanks over there. The ground is maybe not as clean as the ground in your studio. Um, you might not be wearing the outfit that you want to. You maybe were you know, struggling to find parking or something. Like, we come out of our real experience, which of course we do in a studio too. We can't really divorce all the way from our regular everyday experience. Sure. But I think, again, those spaces are designed 
rightfully so, to really enwrap or in, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but like engulf yeah. us yeah. in this like safe cocoon. Yeah. Which is great. And I think there's a great place for some people to start. Some people are like, yes, take me away to something separate. And then their work is to reintegrate. Right. But then I also started to see in Boulder, again, with the people I was inter interacting with, my friends, my family, my coworkers, um, there are a lot of people who I thought could really benefit from my yoga practice who weren't drawn to the... Yeah, they're never going to go in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it felt too separate. Mm -hmm. And then there was also, I'm sure we all, if you're a yogi watching this, I'm sure that we all have people in our lives that we feel that way about, that we'd right. love to introduce to yoga. And like, I'm not going to go where they do those chanty things or where everybody's in fancy, expensive, stretchy pants or whatever whatever the hang-up is, or everyone's thin, or everyone's young, or everyone's a woman, or whatever the things are that people have, but whether it's me having that conversation with someone who's a little resistant, or whether it's one of my students having that conversation, inviting them to the brewery can make that an easier conversation. Right. So that was our first class that happened outside of studios, uh -huh. um, and as I started to look at, again, the steps that were going into building these classes in studios, I was like, well, I'm, I'm working to build these classes at the Body Work Bistro. I'm working to build these classes in Breckenridge. And I think when I saw so many different places, I realized that kind of I was the common denominator, obviously, in my relationship with all of those things. Mm -hmm. And if I could just do, if this tactic was working over here or approach was working here and it was working here and it was working here, why couldn't it work in this other totally unrelated space that happens to be used to brew beer most of the time? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I had friends who were opening a brewery, I walked back into their space and I saw some empty floor and I said, what are you guys doing back here? Would you ever want to have some yoga classes? And they thought it was crazy at first and then it slowly started to infiltrate their, their own marketing strategy conversations about how to build real genuine community in their mm -hmm. space. Because again, I think like a brewery building community around beer is like obvious and it doesn't make it be necessarily any different than like this other brewery building community around beer and this other one. So like when our, when part of their community actually has yoga woven into the fabric, um, it en enriches the soil from which that experience mm -hmm. grows. Mm -hmm. So, so what are all the places that you and altering yoga find yourself in now? Because it's not just the brewery. Yeah, so the brewery was first, um, and that was something, too. People were like, oh, have brewery yoga be your company. Yeah. And I really wanted, to me, the brewery is just an example. It was the yeah. first place because that's where I had a genuine connection, and that's always my advice to people when they want to start teaching classes in alternative locations is not to necessarily do a Google search and see what kind of alternative locations people are offering yoga in, but to like think about your life and where is where someplace. Where you out and what yeah. you are interested in and where your friends are. And where you want to be and where your people want to go. Right. And I was confident in my ability to get people to a brewery. Mm -hmm. And so it was like just one more step to get them to do yoga there um, because that world was familiar to me. And we're going to talk about like Jenna has a very specific distinction between like practicing yoga in a brewery mm -hmm. and like this whole yoga and beer thing, the yoga and the this thing, the yoga and the goats, the yoga and whatever, whatever. Cause it's, a, it's what you're doing is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. So yeah. we'll get, we'll get there. Um, but so that, that's where I started to kind of realize that, um, this, we started about four years ago at Sunitas, uh, which is where I continued to teach every Tuesday. And 
you know, there was brewery yoga happening then and there has continued to be more and more, I'd say, since then. Um, and so I was explaining to people all the time that, you know, we weren't getting drunk and doing yoga. We weren't saying that you should always drink beer after yoga. And so to me, building a company that was called Brewhouse Yoga would be like yoga comes with beer. Right. And even though in the literal instance on Tuesday night, yoga comes with beer or kombucha or root beer um, or nothing, like you can right. also come in and just hang out with us. Um, and it is like included in the experience, at least from a financial perspective. Mm. Um, and it's folded in, of course, because we're surrounded by it while we're practicing. So to me, it's about like not, like I said, uh, divorcing from or separating from the rest of our everyday experience. And so I'm not trying to drag people to a brewery who don't want to go to a brewery. I'm trying to invite people to yoga who might not normally go to yoga. Right. And so if the brewery is not that access point, then, right. then I wanted to have other places. So as we grew, I added classes at the Rayback, which is a food truck park. It also has kind of a bar type atmosphere. Um, but I have a lot of friends who are in different sober communities in Boulder, and it is a, and it's a place that is also really popular among, yeah. among people in those communities. And, and some of them will come to the brewery too, you yeah. know, but, yeah. Um, which I also think is cool to, to kind of reframe our relationship to going to the bar. You don't have to go to the bar to get slammed all the time. You can go to the bar to do yoga and have a couple drinks with your friends and eat some tacos and, you know, right. and connect and have real conversation. Uh, and again, coming from the food and beverage world, you know, I worked at restaurants where there were a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s who were just getting out of college and really like having fun. And, and that's where I kind of came into Colorado in that space. And those were definitely the years that for myself, I was learning that like, well, I like to go out and have some drinks with my friends. I didn't need to take shots anymore. For me, that just like didn't feel like a thing I wanted to do. And when I decided I didn't want to do that, I could say no and be fine. Um, but I didn't want to go out and have seven or eight drinks in a night, I could go out and have one or two, no matter what the people around me were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so to change the way that I saw social situations and allowing myself to have these standards to make real connections with people no matter where I am, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like that everything is everything idea or wherever you go, there you are. Right. When we have a separate person that goes to yoga and a separate person who goes to work and a separate person who goes to the bar and a separate person who's in a marriage or a relationship or a separate person who's a daughter, I mean, for me, that was like exhausting. Right. I guess I never really pulled it off for any measurable amount of time. But when I have moments like that, I'm like, how can I be upholding this Jenna here and this Jenna here and this Jenna there and this Jenna here? Mm -hmm. I want to cultivate one that works in all the places. Mm -hmm. And so to me, by bringing our yoga practice to work, to the bar, on vacation, like that's where I get to, as a practitioner, cultivate myself in the context of all of those things and keep myself anchored to the center that is the essence of who I am. And the practice is the vehicle that's providing the person contact with that same touchstone self, exactly. right? Like obviously we'll be a slightly ver different version of ourselves in different circumstances. That's normal. But what we aren't looking for is split personalities, right. like these really like just like just leading only with the character that we want to also be carrying this sense of integrated supported self. And I mean, this is what somatic psychology is. It's like find and all embodiment practices are finding that um, 
place that's congruent inside that we do take with us. And it just so happens that yoga is one of those practices. <laughs> it could be dance. It could be yoga. It could be any number of things, mm -hmm. but yoga is one of, uh, is a primary and very effective way of coming into contact with that self that goes along wherever we are. And it gave me the most tangible access point to yeah. that self for, for me sure. up until that point in my life. Sure. I'd always been an athlete, but that wasn't an integrated part of who I was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was a, I was a good skier, but I like playing team sports with like balls and sticks and right. all that kind of stuff. Like I never could like relate to the urgency of needing to get to the ball first. Mm -hmm. So like using my body to do that, it wasn't powerful for me, but now I can come back from that authentic place. I mean, I'm still not very coordinated with like Frisbees and stuff, but I can still come back to that place right. and, you know, almost like acting. I imagine that to be a really good actor, you need to know your real self pretty well so that you know which parts of it to keep and which parts of it to set aside when you're playing a character. That's right. And so I think in developing all these different dimensions of our lives and how we, how we comport ourselves, but also I think in the last few years, what I've been paying more attention to is not even necessarily what I'm doing on the outside, but what conversations I'm having with myself on the inside mm -hmm. in a personal versus professional versus spiritual versus mm -hmm. indoor, outdoor, nighttime, daytime, hungry, tired, situation and how can I work to have my internal dialogue be more consistent mm -hmm. and supportive of of my true desire or my true relationship with myself and the world around me rather than feeling like I need to ask a certain set of questions when I'm like negotiating and I need to ask a certain set of questions when I'm in love and you know really separating those kinds of things and instead having it always be Again, I'm not schooled in somatic psychology in the way that you are, but who am I and how do I feel in my body? Right. And where's my breath? Right. And then what happens if I do it on one leg? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and how to just keep easing that transition and to keep bringing myself back to um, the observation of my own somatic reality. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I really look to create for people by by having classes in these different mm -hmm. different places. So we so at the brewery once or twice a week, um, Rayback Collective, which for those of you living outside Boulder, it's like Jenna said, it's a um, it's like a it's a co-op. It's like a co-op food truck in thing. It's like this really cool place. Um, and at the farmers market on mm -hmm. the lawn in this in season. Mm -hmm. um, another space called the Riverside, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's where we're at the farmer's market in the summer on Wednesdays right now. And then uh, once the season was over, right. uh, we moved across the creek to the Riverside, which is right. a beautiful event space. Um, and we're looking at different ways to have that continue even once the market comes back in. So maybe uh -huh. moving it to a different day. One of the things I'm really interested in doing to uh, reinvigorated by this cruise I was just on. It was a music festival on a boat called Jam Cruise. And I got uh, to connect with a number of different really, really talented musicians from all over the world and taught seven different classes with different artists in every class uh, from solo guitar and vocals to uh, grand piano, saxophone, trumpet, bass, guitar, and vocals, cool. uh, and kind of everything in between. And I also am a musician, I sing, and I grew up listening to and appreciating music a lot. And I have a lot of different, 
I just feel for a lot of different musicians touring the country, trying to take care of themselves and also fostering connection with their fan base. Mm. And I've seen a lot of artists really do that in cool ways, just even through conversation while they're on stage or through social media, artists who are really fostering meaningful conversation about who we are. Mm. And I think especially, you know, in, in light of a lot of the struggles that we've always seen, but it, maybe it seems like more lately that artists and actors and entertainers and people who are working so hard to, to create in this world, you know, struggle so much so often internally with their own demons and challenges and so I feel like having an opportunity to integrate their work with their art like their internal work with their creative work mm. um, and then connecting with their fans from that space is an opportunity that I that I see for um, I don't know for all of us supporting each other so that the artist doesn't feel like they're living this like solo struggle as an artist right. and we as consumers of art don't feel totally disconnected from that creativity in all of us, whatever our skill level might be. Right. And that's something I share a lot with my teacher, Gina Caputo, who I know that you know mm -hmm. worked with a lot. Yeah, we love Gina. Um, so oh, Gina. Yeah. Just the mention of Gina started getting likes across the screen. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. I love that. Um, and Gina's been my connection to the jam crews also. Uh -huh. And so she and I really share that desire to connect with, with musicians. And I got the chance to talk to a number of them this week with people who played in class about about ways that I could really meaningfully support them while they're on tour again both supporting them in their own practices but also you know bringing someone who's playing a, a show on a Thursday or Friday into a class on a Monday or Tuesday mm. to help some of my students hear their music and want to go to their show later mm. on and just creating a more integrated experience overall and then within the class itself figuring out how the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. It's not just somebody playing background music for a yoga class, and it's not just someone talking over music, but right. it's actually us like co-creating this right. experience where right. they're leaning in and really using the music as their full expression related to the same things that I'm teaching. And as I get to know the artists more, we can really have, you know, maybe they have something that they want to relay that I can say in words or that they can sing about while I'm making the more literal physical right. instructions. Right. That's really cool. So that's something that I'm really hopeful we get to integrate going forward. And yeah. it's just, it's one of those things that I'm still wrapping my head around from a business perspective, how to right. make it make sense for everybody. Sure. Yeah. And so for those folks who um, are considering not teaching in studios, are looking at alternative spaces, um, I mean, you already mentioned like considering where you want to be, mm -hmm. where your people are, what's meaningful to you, under what, you know, under what circumstances would you want to attempt to build community? What are other sort of key things that you found are important when you're going out of the studio and, and cultivating teaching in an alternative space? I mean, I've taught an alternative space. I mean, I've taught in, um, gyms, not that it's such an alternative space, I've taught in gyms, I've taught in churches, I've taught in schools, I've taught in synagogues. My favorite place I ever taught was a dilapidated church in Baltimore City. Mm -hmm. This place was like literally falling to pieces and we just made it so beautiful in there. We did like a little co-op in there, um, different classes every day and it was amazing. It was so, it was so cool. I hosted a kirtan there with some friends of mine as well. Um, now I obviously have the studio in our backyard and it's small. There's only, you know, a couple people can only come for time. Um, so it's really just different. I've taught the JCC, I've taught 
plenty of places, senior centers. Yeah. So yeah, tell us just like some key things to consider as folks are going out there and, and just getting out of that, like, I'm a successful yoga teacher if I teach at, you know, the most visible studio in town. Yeah. As my, one of a friend of mine who teaches at other house too, she, she said to me a couple months ago, like, it's not that the studios, and this is very true about Boulder, it's, it depends on the environment, but it's not that the studios have the better voice, they're just louder. And like those of us who are doing unconventional things or less conventional things, it's just our voice is not as loud. So what can we and do? And it's not as like unified. We right. don't have, a lot of us don't have a whole staff. Right. You know? um, I think the biggest thing for me is that whenever I go into a play, a space, I don't want to be apologizing for where I am. Mm-hmm. So if I'm on a cruise ship and the boat is rocking, we're going to use the rocking of the boat. I'm sure. going to talk about it. We're going to feel it. Somebody might tip over and like, it becomes a part of it. Uh-huh. We're at the brewery. You know, I don't apologize for the fact that it smells like beer. Um, one of the other places that I haven't mentioned yet really is that I, I teach in a lot of different offices. In right. town. Um, and I've loved that. And I don't apologize to those people that they're at work because that's why it's working because they're at work and I think of them. Right. And so we're at work. If we're at right. someone's house and their kid wakes up from a nap, we don't like wish that the kid didn't wake up. They get to lay down on the ground or be with us or whatever. Right. So it's all about folding in all those pieces. Mm. So in order for me to be able to do that consistently, to unapologetically integrate our surroundings, however, whatever the amount of control is that we have over them, um, it means like saying no to things that don't resonate with me. Can you give us an example? Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is the goat yoga phenomenon. Uh-huh. You know, I was, and people with a different relationship to goats than I have might maybe have a great reason to teach goat sure. yoga. But it, I had to sit with it because I think sometimes in industries like the yoga industry, um, we're conditioned to accept every opportunity that comes our way. Uh-huh. And I was presented with the opportunity to teach goat yoga a number of different times. And it took me a few times to realize why I was kind of always just letting those messages like go away. <laughs> I wasn't handling them in a way that I was necessarily proud of. I mean, I wasn't being a jerk or anything, but sure. but I just kind of like neglected and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't moved to, to be professional about those inquiries. And I realized it's because like, I didn't, and this was kind of before it had fully taken off. It was after those first few classes in Portland, which I'm pretty, which is I'm pretty sure where it all started. And then a few people in Boulder, I feel like, it's probably safe to say Boulder was kind of second on the goat yoga train. Okay. I'm so <laughs> but, out of the loop that I don't, um, I don't know that for sure. I haven't done particular research on it, but it seemed to jump on the heels of this event that happened. Um, and, and there are some people involved in goat farms in Boulder County that I, I really love. And right. I had actually contributed um, gift certificates for yoga to fundraisers to support goat farms. Like, great. Like I'm totally, on board with goats existing in the world, but I was like, that's not where you want. I to just go always like, I don't want to be climbed on by a goat right. while I'm practicing. Right. Um, and it doesn't matter if that's right or wrong, or if other people can or want to do it or whatever. But right. what I know, learned for me, or what I realized for me was like, I didn't want to do that. Right. So, um, you know, I could look at it like anything that we would talk about psychologically. Like, I could look at it and say, Am I resisting this and avoiding something? Or right. is it okay for me to just not want to practice right. yoga with goats? Right. And I decided that right. the latter was true. <laughs> well, I mean, even certainly, like, we've got, you know, Lululemon has a history of offering free yoga classes mm-hmm. and fitness classes in their stores. And they just make room. I mean, I've taught there any number of times. And 
um, hey, I like yoga. I like clothes. <laughs> right? Like, or um, like we have a friend who teaches at Topo sometimes. Or mm -hmm. like Prana has a downstairs studio and they offer free community classes. Yeah. Uh, like Wonderpress, our, our local juice and smoothie place, um, sometimes clear stuff out and, and there can be classes and events in there. And so um, I just love this idea of like going to where it's interesting for you and um, where, you, where you and your kind of people want to hang out and who you want to teach yoga to. And, and a message you can get behind, right. you know. Um, for me, that's a big part of it. And maybe it's remnants of my, you know, desire to be involved in policy and activism. But, you know, um, all the things actually that I'm wearing right now are uh, Free Flying Fish, which is an activewear company that my friend runs. Um, she works with women in Peru to have yoga clothes made fairly and, um, cool. and sells them here. She designs everything in Boulder and, uh, and she's awesome. So like, once you start thinking about that stuff, like, you can't unthink about it. Mm -hmm. But then actually, for example, and full disclosure, like, I got a request from Aerie, um, the like loungewear division of American Eagle Outfitters, mm. to teach a class at the mall uh, as a part of their campaign about eating disorder awareness and positive body image. Now, Aerie, I don't know all the details of their production, but I'm fairly certain it's not produced as mindfully as my friend Ellen's stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to like reconcile that and then go offer something on behalf of them, but they are doing something about body awareness right. and about acceptance of all bodies. And right. it got me to the mall for the first time in forever and into their fitting rooms where they have like positive affirmations. Yeah, and what about all the girls like teen? Like I used to, I taught yoga to teens for years. Like what about the girls um, and young and young men and everybody in between, however they want to identify any teenager. I mean, I started yoga when I was a teenager, but it's not because like I was invited to do it. I just like wanted to go be weird and anonymous. I was like, let me go do this obscure thing called Iyengar yoga. And at the time it was, but um, like yoga so in so many ways it's mainstream now. How can we reach and do something positive with young people? Yeah. Um, so that's a great way to like, they're hanging out at the mall. Right. Let's so, invite them to do something yeah. that might be even more life affirming. Totally. Right? Like they're hang like just like when we do yoga in a recovery center or in a halfway home or wherever, um, like how can we present um individuals, regardless of the location, with something that's life affirming and it helps them find that place and then yeah. so oftentimes we're like finding them where they are so to exactly. me each opportunity to teach a class is like weighing weighing the pros and cons there's no place that's perfect do I want people to drink beer after yoga every time absolutely not if they are going to drink a beer would I like it to be at Sunita's Brewing because I know the people who make it and they put their hearts and souls and creativity and all these things into it in order to bring people together like yes and I, and I think I'm also hearing like there's just this whole sort of gestalt of this of idea of like what a studio is, what it stands for, who it's serving, and like what you kind of have to buy into to go there. And there's plenty of people who really don't want to buy into that, mm -hmm. not to mention the fact can't afford it. Right. And then there's this whole weird dynamic where studios are trying to lower their prices as low as they can. There's a sort of it creates this weird competition in the market. And it's like, what if we just go off for fairly priced yoga 
um, at a location where the person feels like they can be themselves. So many people feel like they have to be the yoga person, as you were yeah. saying, to go into a studio. Totally. Um, and I know we only have like another few minutes, but, um, and that's mostly because I lose my childcare in a few minutes. <laughs> but, um, uh, talk to us a little bit about, um, and I think you speak to this so heartfully and clearly, like the difference between what you're doing and like the, like the yoga and beer, like the, the yoga and the gimmicks thing. And what the difference is in how you're offering and how that works in your own body, what you what your experiences have been, and also, if you're willing, some of the kind of pushback that you've gotten. Yeah. You know, because I think that there are plenty of people, and on any given day, I might be one of them, like, that's not real yoga, <laughs> right? So what do you do with, how do you feel those comments, and what do you do with that, and how has it impacted you, and what do you have to say to those of us who are like, that's not real yoga, or yoga is this, or you can only do it here, you know, yeah, that whole thing. I've gotten surprisingly little of that to my face. I suspect that a lot more of it goes on in other circles that uh -huh. I'm not a part of. Uh -huh. um, but, but I do know that, but yeah, just as an example, I have a lot of friends who are sober. And I think about them all the time when I'm planning my classes, whether they literally come or not, I want to create a space that feels welcoming to them. And whether that means making sure that I always have some like less alcohol centric locations on my public schedule, that's like one piece of it. Um, or whether I, you know, I'm just not promoting a culture of debauchery when I'm there. And that's again, what feels authentic to me. And so I think when we talk about this larger kind of novelty yoga movement, if we want to call it that, although I think a movement by definition is kind of unified and this one probably isn't, nor should it be. I think, um, you know, I'm not going to point fingers at anybody and say that they're, that they're doing something wrong, but I can say that I'm not going to drink a beer while I'm practicing yoga. If someone has, this is something that I don't actually have like an, official policy on but again just full disclosure if someone has had a beer and is in the tap room and is considering coming to yoga i'm never the one to say don't come i want to say like please pay attention to how you actually feel and notice if if it feels like some of your senses are right not as heightened as usual right um if you're like wow i've never gotten this far into a split before and you've had a beer like maybe back off just in case um, so I've definitely had that kind of conversation with someone. If someone's obviously intoxicated, I'm going to discourage them from coming. But but there are a lot of classes where people are, like, celebrating drinking beer while they're practicing. And I understand the lighthearted and the fun around it. Um, and all I can say is, like, that's not what we're doing. And what we're doing is focusing on how things like beer or like music or like anything that people relate to more easily, um, how those can bring people together. And for me, it's a weighing of kind of the cost-benefit analysis of like, how much are we losing by whatever by the saying yoga only is. happens there, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, how is is the opening the invitation wider outweighing whatever sacrifices we might be making in the integrity of the practice itself? And I think this is a question that, like, this is a living question, you all, that we as individuals and as um, communities of teachers to use that. Um, big word again, need to really ask, like, what is the cost-benefit analysis of the different locations? Um, and, like, okay, 
preserving the integrity of something in its, I dare I even use the word, classical way. I mean, mm -hmm. what is even classical yoga anymore in the West? It's like the whole thing is getting reinvented. Totally. And that was something I was thinking of before when we were talking about bigger classes versus smaller classes. So, um, one of my favorite things that I think Gina has ever said to me is like, group yoga classes are wildly impractical from a yoga perspective. And that's not how this whole thing started. You had a teacher and you saw them and you worked with them and then you went home and you worked on your practice. I'm talking in, you know, in India when all this was first coming about, which by the way, didn't happen in one centralized location, as you know, like, you know, it was a lot of different traditions coming together with a lot of different influences. Um, and that's really helped to inform, um, Gina does a workshop a lot of, you know, around this area. Um, called the history of modern yoga and the content of that workshop has been really influential to me in evaluating what I'm doing and why you know British gymnastics was a major influence on early postural yoga and so great if British gymnastics can influence what we think is okay then why can't like the craft brewing industry you know okay <laughs> I mean cool and so like, I I'll buy so it. I just asked myself again that makes sense for me sure um and somebody else's criteria might be different, but but I can I can stand behind again Sanitas right. because I know them, I know how they're doing things, and I know why they're doing things. And that to me is more important than even the what of what they're doing. Um, and same with um, with Topo Designs, you know, making all their things here in so Colorado. Like the clothing company um, here in Colorado that we love. Uh, you know, and, and the farmer's market, like, I am behind what those people are doing, right. and that feels good to me. And I'm also hearing, I think, a bigger, like, a, an overarching meta thing, too, is, like, we are so deprived at a certain level of uh, connection to self, like, that stays in contact when we're with others, mm -hmm. but also, like, as it relates to being in a body, like, um... We go from our houses, we put on our shoes, we get in our cars, we drive to our office, we sit in the office, da 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 da, -da, -da. And all day long, we're in these very, like, regimented kind of movements with no body contact or contact to the earth. Mm -hmm. And, like, one of the best things that yoga can help facilitate is a relationship back to the earth of our body, to the earth of the, each other's bodies, yeah. and the earth of the space. And so... Um, it's for me, what I hear in all these, whether it's novelty or not, or studio or in the park or whatever, is like, we got to get in our bodies mm -hmm. and we got to connect with each other from the space of our bodies. Like we cannot have meaningful connection unless we are in here. And to feel the freedom to access the wisdom of our bodies right. and then to act upon the wisdom of our bodies. Right. If that means to move in a way that might be like socially unacceptable while you're, I, I used to joke about waiting in line at the deli counter at the grocery right. store, you know, like <laughs> who's to say you're not supposed to do like slow motion hula hoop action with your hip while you're waiting for your cheese to get sliced or hey, whatever. I mean, and, you gotta do what you gotta do. You know, do. and we decided that, but like what does the world look like when I, you know, I think airports are a great example. I've seen it become more and more normal for people to do yoga at airports. Totally. It makes so much sense, right? Totally. Ten years ago, if somebody sat down on the floor and started reaching and touching their toes or whatever, somebody might have thought it was weird. It's like the body, you know, uh, one of the things you're doing so beautifully is like normalizing that we have a body. Right. Wherever we go, when you're drinking a beer, you have a body. <laughs> totally. When you're having a conversation, you're in a, like, and that's, 
And regardless of where you are, you have a body, you're in a body. Can you find ways to come back into that space um, in wherever you are? And at this point in time, you're calling that yoga. <laughs> and um, the critics can say that may, is or is not yoga, but this is the term that you're using. And you're very clear. One of the things that Jenna does so beautifully is she's very clear about operationally defining her terms. This is what I do. This is where I'm doing it. This is how we do it. This is who we do it with. And this is what I mean by that. Thing. And this is why we, and this is why we do it. It's very, she does it very, very clearly. And that's something amazing. that I, thank you. I appreciate that. I think what gets lost for me in a lot of studio environments is the why, because yes. nobody's asking why in a brewery. People are always asking why or the, the hell are you doing that? Or the why is very like me, me, me. Yeah. And it's just like assumed, you know, like, uh -huh. why is that guy's picture hanging on the wall? Somebody knows and somebody has a reason, right. but how many people are just accepting it as the way that it is? Right. And I think, again, for me, everything is everything. And if we're not asking that about our yoga practice, what, are, what else are we asking that about? So, um, so that's all terrain yoga to me, right? That's like, all terrain yoga. We're rolling with it as it comes. Yeah, exactly. Um, any other things that you'd want to share like any other things that we didn't get? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'd be happy to, to tell us about the, tell us about the Thailand. Thing oh yeah. I'm going to Thailand next month. Um, which is exciting. It's very antithetical to these public classes and, and classes that I do in offices where, where we say like, we don't need ideal conditions. I'm going to Thailand in ideal conditions. We're going to practice in floating bamboo little houses on a lake in a national forest. And so, to me that like pulsation of that like we do it where we are but then like we can go there and I'm going to be with the same people for 10 days practicing a couple times a day and we can definitely like, go deeper in certain ways very cool so very cool so that's kind of like the other end of the spectrum and I'm super excited to have the opportunity to do that yeah with integral travel so if you're interested we still have some space left you can find Jenna online at allterrainyoga.com Facebook, All Terrain Yoga, Instagram, All Terrain Yoga. Thanks for listening.